Good morning. Could you open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4? John chapter 4. We're going to focus on verses 16 to 26 this morning, but I'd like for us to start reading in verse 7 of John chapter 4. And you can find that on page 888 of the Pew Bibles. If you're using one of those. We normally stand for the reading of God's Word, but I'll just ask that you remain seated uh, for this morning's, for the sake of time and the reading of this uh, text. So with chapter 4 of John's Gospel, we'll start in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this particular passage in which we might see ourselves and our great need for Christ and to see how you have met that need for Christ by sending him into the world on our behalf. Thank you for providing us salvation through him. I pray that the same living water that Jesus speaks of in this passage that we would partake from this morning, 
as we look to Him. That Your Holy Spirit would become in us a well springing up to eternal life. So apply the Word now in such a way that we might have that life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, today we see three more truths about Jesus Christ that come to light from this encounter with the woman of Samaria. John wrote this entire gospel that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have His life and His name. Chapter 20, verse 31 tells us, Everything John has written serves that gracious and glorious end of us receiving life when we believe in the name of Jesus. So under divine inspiration, John includes this, this encounter with the Samaritan woman so that we, fallen, rebellious, broken, blind sinners, might see our deepest need for life and see God's perfect provision for life in His Son, Jesus Christ. And there are three truths, three more truths about Jesus that unfold here as He speaks to this woman such that believing them will give you life. Not simply conversion, not simply the entrance into life out of death, but the forever nourishing life of unhindered fellowship with God Himself, characteristic of the age to come, but available and accessible to us now through His Holy Spirit. That's the kind of life we were made for. That's the kind of life we need. And that's the kind of life we find in Jesus Christ if we believe John's testimony about Him. So the first truth about Jesus we see here is that Jesus is our prophet who pursues our wandering hearts. He is our prophet who pursues our wandering hearts. I don't know, but I don't know about you, but I find Jesus' reply to the woman in verse 16 fairly jolting. And then His reply to her in verse 18 to be devastating. Jesus has been trying to get this woman to see that her greatest need is not the physical water she's pulling out of the well, but the living water that comes as God's gift through Jesus Christ. Jesus patiently teaches this woman that the only drink that truly satisfies the soul is the all-satisfying water that He gives, a water that becomes for the thirsty soul a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we saw last week that was the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus' words continue to fall on deaf ears. The woman again misses Jesus' point. She doesn't see her, her true need, that her true need is to have Jesus and all of the life He offers her. All that she thinks she needs is a more comfortable life. Read verse 15 with me. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Her concern is not with what she really needs, namely Jesus Himself. Her concern is with mere personal convenience. If you've got such water, Jesus, let's see it. So that I need not trouble myself with coming here anymore, alone, at high noon, to fetch water. 
So Jesus, apparently never fearing the awkward, then says, he's like the ultimate care group leader right here. He's like never fearing awkward. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. At this point, you're going, where are you taking her? Give me a drink. You need living water. My water is superior to Jacob's. Go call your husband. What are you doing? What we see in verses 17 and 19 is that Jesus is right on track. Verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. That was... That was an easy, clever dodge there. We're professionals at this, you know. We give enough truth to keep the depth of our hurt hidden. We actually use the truth to our own advantage to keep ourselves hidden. We use just enough words to keep things at a superficial level. And Jesus' response is devastating, it's piercing. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. For this woman to see her true need for Jesus, she must see the depth of her thirst. And where she has been seeking satisfaction, but to no avail. With this question about her husband, Jesus isn't out to throw in her face all of her sinful past. You know, five husbands now, and five husbands, and now you have a friend with benefits. Here. He's not out to throw it in her face, he's out to win her heart, which is where the true problem lies. Instead of satisfying herself with the fountain of living waters, her heart seeks satisfaction in lesser things. Five, now six men later. The woman needs to come to terms with her own sinfulness and with the nature of the gift Jesus is offering her to rescue her from her sinfulness. That's why he tells her to bring her husband. He's a prophet. His words expose the true nature of things. Namely, we have desperately wandering hearts. And his words direct us to where true satisfaction is found, namely in the Lord himself. That's what all the, that's what all the prophets, the, the true prophets do in the scriptures. They expose the true nature of things and they direct us to where true satisfaction is found in the Lord himself. What's even more, Jesus is God. Jesus knows who she's been with. He knows her history. He's familiar with her sins. He knows where she's turning to find satisfaction. He knows what she's even doing now. And he tells her, go call your husband to awaken her to what he's been trying to tell her all along. You are desperate for me. Just look at your life wrought with sin and pain and broken relationships and I am here to give you all satisfying drink from God. Do you see yourself in this woman? What tears do you choke back 
when you hear Jesus say, you're right. For you've had five and the one you now have is not your husband. All the pain that you've been hiding behind the superficial smiles, the surface level repentance, the trite replies to people's questions, the half-truths that disguise the reality of your soul. All that you've been hiding now exposed before the light of the world. What sinks down into your gut when you discover Jesus knows me like this? Jesus knows my whereabouts. Jesus knows what I'm clicking on in the middle of the night. Jesus knows my every credit card swipe. Jesus knows what my voice sounds like over my children when I'm in private versus when I'm in public. He sees me when I'm twiddling my thumbs at work. He knows what I said about her. He knows what I think about my care group. I'm undone. I'm wholly undone before the Lord. There's nowhere to hide. Just like he knew this woman of Samaria, he knows us through and through. He knows where you turn for your satisfaction in life. He sees the thrill on your face when you get that new package in the mail and wake up the following morning putting aside the word. He knows how excited you get over a new book and how little joy there is in your soul when someone is saved. He watches how easy it is for us to commune with each other through social media and yet how hard it is to commune with God in prayer. He knows what moves our souls in this world. He sees what a sinful heart will value even above the eternal life-giving God himself. He's well aware of how we've all exchanged, as Paul says, all exchanged the glory of the immortal God for power, sex, and loads of cash. Do you see yourself in this woman? I hope so, because what we also see in Jesus' encounter with the woman is the fact that he still came near to her. He still came near to this woman. Knowing all this about her, Jesus approached her. He came near to her in order to offer her life in himself. He extended to her eternal life and brought, brought up her past sinfulness and her present sinfulness, not to leave her in it, but to show her that he was her, that, that he was her escape from it. And he's your escape too. Jesus isn't afraid of your past. Your sins are not too much for him to handle. I got into the conversation with a fella at Starbucks on Friday. His name is Thomas. And Thomas came and approached me to see if I liked music from the 80s. So we talked. I have no clue about music from the 80s. So we talked about music from the 80s for a little bit. And I finally just said, are you a Christian? Oh, no. So are you opposed to Christianity? Yes. Are you an atheist? No. I'm opposed to that, too. It's like, all right. 
What, what, would, well, what are you? I'm a skeptic. Are you, are you a skeptic of everything? No, apparently, as we rest of the conversation fold out, not a skeptic of his own skepticism. But Thomas was going on and on and on about the historical veracity of the Bible. And I would supply objections here and there. And finally, I just cut Thomas off and I said, Thomas, why are you a skeptic? Like, what's driving this skepticism? And he says, because there are some things in my past that I don't want to deal with. That's why he's a skeptic. That's why he's interpreting the world around him the way he is. Because Thomas doesn't want to deal with his past. So I took him to the woman at the well. And he said that's one thing that he loved about Jesus when he reads, when he reads the Gospels. Is that Jesus always seemed to draw near to sinful, broken people. I said, but you're just saying that you don't believe this. He's like, I don't. I just think it's neat that a guy would do that. I was like, do you think he's doing that right now? And he just said, nah. And he got up and walked off. Conversation stopped. Jesus isn't afraid of your past. Your sins are not too much for Jesus to handle. They're not too ugly for him to look at. They're not too gross for him to talk about. They're not too embarrassing for him to deal with. He brought them up with the woman. Why? Because he's going to the cross to deal with them once for all. And then rise from the dead on the third day that this woman and you might drink like you've never drunk before. From the well of eternal life. He will fill your weary soul with life where there is death. He will bring light where there is darkness. He will satisfy you wherever you are longing. Because he pursued your wandering heart unto death on a cross that leads to life. So that's the first truth we learn about Jesus is that he's our prophet who pursues our wandering hearts and he does so unto death on a cross that we might gain life. He's not afraid of our sins. He takes them on and saves us from them. Second truth about Jesus is that Jesus is our Savior who transforms us into true worshipers. Jesus is our Savior who transforms us into true worshipers. So it's not merely that Jesus pursues knowing us in our sinfulness and filth. He relates to us in order to transform us into something new. Namely, true worshipers. Verse 19 says that the woman perceived that Jesus was a prophet. Jesus exposed her immoral baggage, and she basically says, all right, this guy's not playing around. He's for real. I perceive you are a prophet. But verse 20 shows us that the woman still doesn't fully get it. 
She's right to say that Jesus is a prophet, though it's like the understatement of the year, since Jesus is also God. So she's right to say that Jesus is a prophet, but if she really thought Jesus was a prophet, his words should have led her to turning away from her sins and trusting that God gives life through Jesus Christ. That's what... That's how you respond to all the prophets in the scriptures. Their word goes out. It reveals the truth. I turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. That's what she should have done if she really thought she was a prophet. But that's not what happens, at least not yet. We'll go in there next week. Instead, the woman cuts off any more talk about her sinfulness and raises a matter of religious debate over which location her people should travel to worship. This mountain or that one in Jerusalem? Right? But let's not go deeper in here, Jesus, into the needs, the true needs of my thirsty heart. Let's keep things out there on externals, meeting places, 80s music. I mean, as long as we're talking about my five husbands, why don't you tell me which mountain I should worship? So again, the woman misses the point. And again, Jesus answers her by patiently pointing her to to himself. He doesn't answer by engaging her religious debate. But actually by undermining the whole debate with what he provides. Namely, access to the true worship of his Father. Let's walk through this, his response in verses 21 to 24. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, excuse me, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So he's already beginning to show her that there's nothing really substantial for her to debate about here if an hour is coming when these mountains won't matter any longer when it comes to worshiping the Father. Even the temple in Jerusalem will be obsolete when it comes to worshiping the Father. That doesn't mean the old temple was insignificant. It was a major part of God unfolding His plan of salvation. What it does mean is that the expected hour was dawning when the temple would be replaced by what it had always foreshadowed. Namely, fellowship with the Father through a new and greater temple found in the Son of God Himself. We already saw this in chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. You can go there with me. Just one page over. Chapter 2, verse 19. This is after Jesus cleanses the temple. He tells them, they ask for a sign for his authority. Jesus says, destroy this temple, in verse 19, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John tells us what Jesus was talking about. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is God's greater meeting place. Once the hour arrived, true worship would relate relate not to a place in Jerusalem with all of its sacrifices and priestly mediaries, but to the person of Jesus Christ himself. He is the one the entire system anticipated. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
Why? Because when the hour arrives, true worship will not be limited to a place in Jerusalem, but to the person of Jesus himself. Verse 22. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now that doesn't mean all Jews are saved. Rather, it means that God chose to reveal his plan of salvation to the nation of Israel, not to the Samaritans. And it also means that his plan to save the world would be fulfilled through the Jews, through a Jew. You can almost hear the Apostle Paul in these words here, in Romans 9, verses 4 to 5. When he says, they are Israelites, he's talking about his kinsmen, they are Israelites to them. So think to the Jews here, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. In short, salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus has now shown this woman that her debate will soon be irrelevant because he's about to replace the Temple Mount and that if she's to give any, if she's to give any attention, give attention to anything when it comes to worship, it should be the fact that salvation is from the Jews. Why? Because the one true Jew to whom all of Israel's scripture points is standing right in front of her. So in that light, Jesus goes on in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here. He means here in my coming. The whole temple replacement thing, the whole... The whole salvation from the Jews things is here in me, in my coming, my presence. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. This is the second time Jesus has, taught, has mentioned to the woman about His hour. The hour is coming, verse, 20, verse 21, and then the hour is coming and is now here. What hour do you suppose he's talking about? You can talk. It's okay. What hour do you suppose he's talking about? What? His death. His death. The hour of his death. That's right. He's talking about the hour when he will lay down his life for our sins. He uses it in chapter 2, the same expression, the hour with Mary, his mother. And you'll see it repeatedly throughout the, throughout the Gospel of John. He's talking about the hour when he lays down his life for our sins. And then when you get closer and closer and closer to the cross, what you actually see is that there's actually a component of the resurrection tied in with this hour. So this hour is linked to both Jesus' cross, death, and his victorious resurrection. Keep that in mind when you're reading the Gospel of John. It just starts blowing your mind up when you start connecting all the dots. 
So his hour is when he lays down his life for our sins and rises again victorious from the dead. By saying, the hour is coming and now here, Jesus is telling this woman that he's on his way to the cross to die for her sins. That she might worship the Father in spirit and truth. In fact, what he will achieve for her in his mission to the cross is so sure, so certain that it's as good as done. The hour is coming and is now here. You can believe right now, woman. Ma'am, the hour is now here, just like the living water is available now through me, so also the true worship of the Father is available now through me. Don't miss this. The picture here is not that the woman is worshiping the Father, and then once Jesus dies for her, she can do that now in spirit and truth. The picture is that the woman is already worshiping something, but what she's worshiping isn't God. Her religious background has not only pointed her in the wrong direction, but she's also made an idol of sex. This is why Jesus has an hour. This is why he's going to the cross to die for her sins, namely that she might worship the Father in spirit and truth, period. She's not worshiping the Father at all. She's not born again. Her spirit is dead. She's using the truth to hide her sins. And at best, she's setting up false shrines on the wrong mountain to sacrifice to a false god. According to God's law, idolatry of the heart merits eternal separation from God under the fury of His wrath. There is no worship of the Father when that's true about you. You are wholly cut off from enjoying God. You are, you are God's enemy by nature. And that's true not only for the woman of Samaria, but for all of us apart from Christ. We have all gone astray in an attempt to satisfy ourselves with false worship. And this is why Jesus came. To die for our rebellious worship preferences... And to transform us from being idolaters under a wrathful God into being sons and daughters who worship under a Father's gracious smile. That's why He came. Through His death and resurrection, Jesus opens the way for us to relate to the Father in spirit and truth. That means... It's a worship stemming from the supernatural life of the new birth. Our spirits being awakened to God's. God's spirit, that is. Not God's multiple gods. God's apostrophe, yes. Yeah. Our spirits being awakened to God's spirit. And, and it's also a worship rooted in God's ultimate revelation in Jesus Christ in spirit and truth. Don't have to. The point is not, well, there's spiritual worship, which is experiential, and 
truthful worship, which is doctrinal, and we just always have a hard time fitting experience and doctrine together for some reason. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about if you're not doing it in spirit and truth, you don't worship at all. He's talking about being born again and worshiping and coming to God in the truth found in Jesus Christ. Apart from the new birth and apart from Jesus Christ, the human soul does not participate in true worship. The human soul participates in paganism. True worship only takes place from a new heart for God in and through Jesus Christ. That means that true worship is not dependent on external things or places or sounds. True worship is dependent on internal affections for God. Gaining a new nature in Christ. Experiencing inner transformation by His Spirit. Communing with God in a supernatural relationship. Relating to God as a child relates to His Father. This is what Jesus' hour brings for this woman and brings for all of us who believe. True worship of the Father. It's a worship that occurs not just with song on a Sunday morning, but one that occurs continually as we walk with the Lord at home, in our care groups, in our respective workplaces, while eating, while we play. Since true worship is bound up with our relationship, not to any one place like this place, But to the person of Jesus Christ himself, our worship is unlimited with respect to location. Without minimizing the importance of corporate worship, we can still say that all of life becomes an expression of our worship. An expression of our relationship with the Heavenly Father. Now don't get worship backwards either. It's not that God waits for us to bring Him true worship before He accepts it. Before He accepts us. Jesus' encounter with the woman shows just the opposite. Read Read verse 23 with me again. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Why? For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. More than that, He even sends His own Son to pursue those sinners and die for their transformation into true Worshippers. More than that, when Jesus rise from the, rose from the dead on the third day and ascended to his Father in heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to pursue sinners and transform them into true worshipers. God doesn't wait for us to make ourselves true worshipers. He arrests our hearts while we're still sinful and makes us into true worshipers. I think we need to remind ourselves of this more often. Remind yourself of this kindness of your Father seeking you when you're trying to clean yourself up before coming to Him in prayer after you've yelled at your child. 
Remind yourself that he's the one who pursued you when you're feeling too ashamed to lift your head to sing a song on Sunday morning. Remind yourself that your father is in the business of transformation when you find yourself clutching to some idol you've created of your kids or of your money or of your health or of your wealth. Remind yourself that your father never wavers in his commitment to you worshiping him rightly. As zealous as he was when he sought you and brought you to himself initially, his zeal to see that he brings you to himself finally will never waver. How do I know that? Because Jesus' hour came. That's how I know that. Jesus' hour came. He died. He rose again on the third day. And when we believed, He sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's how I know it. His zeal for you as a worshiper will not waver. Jesus is our prophet who pursues our wandering hearts. Jesus is our savior who transforms us into true worshipers. Lastly, Jesus is our Messiah who reveals God's saving purposes for us. Jesus is our Messiah who reveals God's saving purposes for us. Even at this point in the story, it's difficult to know how many dots the woman is actually beginning to connect. A man has offered her living water. He's an Israelite who says he's superior to Jacob. He appears to be a prophet who knows me inside and out. He speaks of a day when the order of things will, when an old order of things will end and a new age of true worshipers will begin. It's beginning to sound a lot like that Jewish Messiah guy that the scriptures anticipate. However much she's putting together, she has yet to see how any of it relates to Jesus Christ himself. So instead of responding again to her need for transformation, she lobs another religious question into the discussion. I know that Messiah is coming, verse 25. When he comes, he will tell us all things. That's when she thinks her questions will be answered. Jesus isn't answering the questions she would have liked him to. He kept answering her questions in ways that confronted her with her true need, her sexual immorality, and her false worship. But she is sure that when the Messiah comes, he will give her the answers that she's looking for. Verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Love that, don't you? Ironically, the woman is right. The woman is right. When the Messiah comes, he will reveal to her all things. Jesus says, that's what I've been doing. I've been doing just that. I've been telling you all things. Jesus just told her of God's gift of living water and where she could access it in him. Jesus just told her of how she can gain eternal life with God through him. 
He told her of how all her sinful past and, and, that, and, and th- that she might see her true need in him. He told her about the nature of true worship and how the Father grants sinners access to himself through him. He is surely telling her all things and how they relate to himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the expectations and scriptures that have been bound up with Israel's long-awaited Messiah. All of history centers upon what God plans to accomplish through his Messiah. Paul says that God set forth a plan in the fullness of time to unite all things together in the Messiah, whether things in heaven or things upon the earth. Paul even says that this is why the entire created world exists. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. That is, by the Christ and for the Christ. As the Messiah, Jesus is revealing to this woman all that God is up to through his mission. And what becomes clear in these verses, in the, in the verses to come, which we'll talk about next week, is that God is up to something way bigger than what this woman sees, but of which she's just become a part. God gathering the nations to the Messiah. The Messiah comes through the Jews, but he's not merely a Messiah for the Jews. He's a Messiah for the world. All peoples of the world. He is the offspring of the woman who would achieve God's purpose in crushing the head of our ferocious enemy, Satan. He is the expected son of Abraham who would achieve God's purpose in blessing all the families of the earth, giving them a righteousness not their own. He is the royal king from Judah who would achieve God's purpose in subduing the nations and gathering them under his rule. He is the son of David who would achieve God's purpose in establishing a kingdom of peace that lasts forever. He is Emmanuel, the shoot from Jesse, the righteous branch, the suffering servant, the shepherd king, the Lord's anointed, our great high priest, and God has made him both Lord and Christ by raising him from the dead. All And all his promises for eternal life with God for you are yes and amen. All his promises for eternal life are for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God will call to himself. We don't have to look for another way to be saved. We don't have to hide behind religious questions. We don't have to use the truth to hide our sinfulness. God sent his only son into the world to show us where to find true life and to bring us true life, to show us how sinful we are and to die for our sins, to expose our idolatry and to transform us into true worshipers. There's no one else we need to turn to for life. Nothing else we need to satisfy our souls. As our prophet, he pursues our wandering hearts. As our savior, he transforms us into true worshipers. And as our Messiah, he reveals God's saving purposes for us fully.
So would you cast yourself upon him again this morning? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the drink of living water, which has become in us a well for eternal life. Pray that anybody here who does not know Christ would come and ask drink from him and take from him. May they see that you are glad to give full satisfaction to us through him. I ask that you would encourage those who are downcast, who've been coming to you for drink, but yet since uh, the darkness of their soul weighing in, I ask that you would strengthen them to keep coming to the fountain of living waters and that you would keep them and guard them from going to the things of this world for satisfaction. Fill us up as a body that we might walk together in the life that our Savior offers us and give us grace now as we continue to express our worship to you in song. I said in Jesus' name. Amen.